Hello everyone and welcome to For Fact's Sake, the Ferrets podcast about misinformation and fact checking. I'm your host, Ali Bryan, and alongside me as always, my faithful co-host, the Machiavelli of the media, Paul Dobson. How are you, Paul? Very well, Ali. Yeah, Machiavelli sounds a bit sinister, does it not? Surely maestro, no? Yeah, to be honest, it's a it's quite a nice word to say. That's part of the reason yeah. I chose it. Sounds good on the air. Yeah, sounds good on the air. And also, you know, there's the fact that you're also evil. Yes, that is true. That that does make it more apt, I suppose, when I consider that factor. So, on that note, what have we got coming up on this podcast, Paul? Yeah, so we're discussing the history of political scandal and sleaze in the UK with Dr. Ian Kaywood from the University of Stirling. He's a researcher on that very topic. Later on in the pod, we are discussing a fact check you did about the Rwanda migration plan. And on Paul's Curiosity Corner, we're looking at that uproar about the octopus on University Challenge. So lots to look forward to. Yeah, a very varied pod this week. Okay, well, let's start off with our interview with Dr. Ian Kaywood. My name is Dr. Ian Kaywood. Uh, I'm uh, Associate Professor in Modern British Political and Religious History at the University of Stirling, and I'm currently writing a book on public service. Excellent. Well, today we're talking about um, sleaze and corruption and perceptions of such uh, in public service and government. Um, obviously, we're sort of living through a time of sort of perceived sleaze. Um, the kind of Boris Johnson government had allegations of corruption and sleaze uh, regularly. In Scotland, the former First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, was arrested as part of a probe into party finances. But do you say, as a from a historical perspective, is sleaze in the UK getting worse? Um, as a historian, I'd have to say it's probably returning to the kind of level that we saw last at the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, lots of very powerful vested interests, lots of political forces that through various controls of various instruments of uh, influence are able to pretty much remain in power. And if you are remaining in power for too long, then sooner or later the temptation to misuse that authority uh, in order to uh, maximise your own advantage, um, as I think the modern definition would be, um, tends to become overwhelming. There's nothing like a major existential crisis for making people realise what's important and what's not important. Wars are always very good for this. Um, one Swedish um, academic I know says that, you know, it pays to lose a war and lose it big time if you want to get rid of corruption. Uh, but mm. we had covid and COVID basically uh, showed up, um, A, Johnson for uh, what he was, uh, but also made people um, less tolerant towards him than they had been um, with their exasperation with the Brexit process. Yeah, so you mentioned um, that today and this sort of mire of scandal today reminds you somewhat of the early 19th century. So yeah. can you just draw out some of the parallels there and yeah. sure, explain sure. what sort of scandal was, and corruption were like back then and why you think that's similar to now? Yeah, um, it often depends on systems of patronage and systems of power. In our political system that we have nowadays, um, the patronage of the executive, particularly in, in the British system of the prime minister, is enormous. 
And the ability to, you know, as I said, uh, the only restraint on that is the personal restraint and the integrity of the individual themselves. Uh, and if you have um, an individual um, who is determined to try to uh, maximise their advantage and use every opportunity in order to do so, um, that's very similar to um, the beginning of the 19th century. There you had a succession of uh, mainly conservative prime ministers who used their influence with the monarch uh, in order to um, try to uh, claim to be reforming for the public good, <clears throat> but in reality, helping to embed aristocratic control of most of the institutions of the country, which were being effectively siphoned off uh, money from these institutions, particularly the church, being siphoned off for the benefit of um, those people um, who occupied them, were doing very little work. Um, and you also had, of course, uh, a system whereby um, the political system of the day was so heavily rigged uh, it was almost impossible to uh, achieve any change. Now, it's not as extreme as that, certainly mm -hmm. not as extreme as that. I'm not suggesting that for a minute. But it demonstrates that if one gets in the position of patronage and is prepared to use it, Boris Johnson was, a, in some ways, a very fascinating, if rather terrifying, example of, of just how unreformed certain elements of the British state actually are, particularly, of course, the Houses of Parliament, where you can still employ your family members, you can still claim massive expenses, uh, and you can pretty much lie as long as your party backs you. Do you think that basically there's a sort of sense in Britain and the UK Parliament particularly that everything is based on conventions, that everyone is yeah. going to do their best and everyone is, is operating because yeah. they're there for to be um, to serve the public? Yeah. But essentially, these institutions or the kind of conventions are outdated and yeah. allow kind of this sort of things to flourish. Well, it's fascinating because what happens in the 19th century is sort of like a two-route path. And in a sense, the COVID moment was a moment where you saw these two cultures hit head on. You mm. had the contrast between the self-interest, um, complete lack of regard for any kind of rules, as we saw um, in Partygate, uh, compared with alongside that, the fact that we were all outside applauding the bravery um, and the selflessness of the health service. And both of these things emerged in the 19th century. So this is the problem, you see. In a sense, there's a balance between these two different forces. On the one hand, professions, not all of them, but most professions standardised and became had to have rules and mm. sanctions against you if you misbehaved in any fashion, teachers, doctors, lawyers, and so forth. Um, and you developed within that, not necessarily as a result of just the rules, but you developed almost... Um, as a result of the pressures of modernity, the pressures of industrialization, a, an entire army of um, altruistic, rather paternalistic, but altruistic, um, often Scottish educated um, public servants who developed the concept of the public good. Now, that mm. for me is heavily embedded in an awful lot of institutions, the most famous of which, of course, you could say is the National Health Service. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, however, there are institutions which were not reformed in the 19th century. Um, one historian put it this way. He said, if somebody from the 1850s came back in 2000, he was writing in 2000, and saw the ongoing privileges of the Church of England, of the City of London, of the Royal Family, of the Houses of Parliament, he would say, what have you been doing for 150 years? We started this process <laughs> going. Why have you not finished it? This is the point. We have all these institutions. You know, if, if 
you want conventions and rules. Well, sometimes you just have to be practical. If you want to really have a clean House of Parliament, um, as well as actually having some rules rather than just conventions and and standards, which are not enforceable, as Johnson demonstrated, um, what you need to do really is to sort of take away temptation. Um, One of the most important things to understand about corruption is that it's very expensive to get rid of it. You've got to pay Mm. your public servants properly to save them the temptation. And you've got to make sure they've got a good pension because that gives them a good carrot as well as a stick to make sure they behave themselves so they can get that pension at the end of it. So one of the catalysts of having this conversation is the current scandal that's happening in Scotland with Michael Matheson yeah, yeah, and his sure. use of his uh, unauthorized use of an iPad, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of people have been saying that a scandal of that size, maybe 20 years ago, would immediately have led to someone's resignation. Yeah. Uh, the reference point's been made, and Henry Cleish resigning over yeah. a, registry, a register issue with his office and subletting his office quite complicated to describe in, in this yeah. short space of time I, I wonder it was would that even really register now yeah for a prime minister or a first minister would that be considered to be a huge thing we've got a situation now where i mean nicola sturgeon i know we talked about before like you literally was arrested yeah and was still invited to the smp conference and still yeah. relatively like considered to be she's not like persona non grata michael matheson we're not exactly sure what's going to happen but seems to be getting defended over this yeah so are we in a situation now where the bar to get to lose your job is a lot higher than it would have been previously? I think that's true. Um, but as I say, it's all about levels of tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you know, the, the, you hear, hear this phrase often when there's a scandal or, as you say, something is uncovered in this fashion, and that is, you know, let's move on. Let's move on. Mm. You know, there's an apology. Let's move on. In a sense... That's what the politicians, usually of the same political party, want you to do. Yeah. They don't make that decision, right? No. It's, A, it can be journalism that keeps the story going. I mean, several attempts were made to put the lid on Partygate, and they all failed. But it's also public response. There's a public response to it. As I say, corruption is not absolute, And if you think about it, let's think about this in two ways. The idea of you you becoming a senior civil servant simply because you're related to somebody is completely unacceptable to us. But it was standard practice in 1800. The idea of a political party, all political parties, publishing a list of effectively electoral bribes to the electorate would have been completely unacceptable in 1800, but it's perfectly acceptable today. So there's no absolute standard. The only standard is public acceptance of this. And I think there is genuinely a case that um, political parties have become much more adept at trying to diffuse scandals by emphasising the small nature of them and such like. I think politicians themselves um, are encouraged nowadays um, to think more of politics as a career rather than simply as being a form of public service. So in a sense, it's the public, it's the press, but it's also the political leadership. If the political leadership decides that, that person's career is so significant they're prepared to defend them, or if they decide that actually they're they're worth jettisoning. See, politics yeah. is works 
in a far more utilitarian way. It's not necessarily about whether or not it's right, though an individual can make that judgment for themselves, but yeah. whether or not you know people will tolerate this. So Ali, there's been a lot of discussion about the UK government's Rwanda plan over the last couple of weeks. Helpfully for our site this week, you've produced a handy explainer which outlines the key issues with the plan. So I thought we could recap on the pod. Um, first of all, what was the Rwanda plan or what is the Rwanda plan, depending on your view of how legal challenges might go? Yeah, uh, still to be decided whether it's a was or is situation. Um so, I mean, the plan was agreed a while ago, back before Rishi Sunak's time in charge under uh, Boris Johnson uh, in 2022. And essentially, the plan was to sort of offshore some of the UK's uh, immigration policies. So it would mean that some people who were seeking asylum in the UK would be transferred to Rwanda, where their claim would be processed by Rwandan authorities. Um, if they their asylum claim was successful, then they would be granted refugee status in Rwanda. And if they were unsuccessful, they could they could try and apply just as, as a normal migrant in Rwanda or yeah. return back to their original country they came from or try and go to a, a third country and seek asylum there. Um, essentially, the UK government said that the policy was meant to deter people from uh, entering the UK in like small boat crossings. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we know, as it stands, no one's actually been transferred to Rwanda. Um, because it's been held up by various uh, legal challenges. And most recently uh, in the last week where it was found to be, the plan was found to be unlawful by the Supreme Court, which upheld a ruling from the Court of Appeal um, that people who were sent there could actually face human rights abuses. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why your your explainer was very useful is because there seems to be a lot of confusion about the details of the plan, even yeah. in some cases from actual UK government ministers. So can you just mm. explain a wee bit how the Rwanda plan has been misrepresented? Yeah, it's been a really interesting one and quite depressing from our point of view. Mm. Um, mm. That there seems to be a lot of confusion, as you say, even in within government or within people who are, you know, MPs that have been defending the plan on, in the media. Um, so for most recently, um, uh, former government minister Neil O'Brien, um, he said the policy would involve Rwanda hosting people as we as in the uk process them under british laws about whether they can come here and again that's similar to something that was said by um the former tory leader and now lord ian duncan smith um who said that people who were central wando were those that were being suspected of being economic migrants rather than asylum seekers and if they were found to be refugees they would be returned to the uk um but now those claims are actually correct and they don't really represent what the policy is um essentially the, the as you said as i said before it's not about um people being processed in rwanda then brought back to the uk it's about essentially taking a selection of people who have come to the uk via irregular routes and then potentially being offered asylum in rwanda so the whole point of it is it's meant to be a deterrent um just to, sort of people who you know, if they, if if people are coming to um, coming across to the UK on small boat crossings via irregular routes, then if the, the the kind of logic behind it is that if people are sent to Rwanda and 
I can claim a salmon of wonder, then that would be a less appealing prospect. Yeah, and in some ways, the Supreme Court upheld that view by suggesting that people could be subject to human rights abuses in Rwanda. So what are the sort of legal concerns with the plan? Legal roadblocks to this policy have been quite significant. Flights were initially going to start last year. That got stopped because one of the people on the flight was given a sort of interim uh, intervention from the European Court of Human Rights. Um, and then this most recent decision, the, the Supreme Court uh, essentially upheld a decision that had been made to the Court of Appeal over that original flight, saying that if the policy was put in place as it is now, that people who were seeking asylum, if they were sent to Rwanda, could be at risk of human rights violations. Yeah, this is quite a big blow to the UK government's sort of agenda, and particularly Rishi mm. Sunak, who has made it quite a big part of his pitch to the electorate. So what are yeah. the UK government planning to do about this? Um, well, that's a good question, and a lot of that is up in the air at the moment. That uh, it's Sort of immediately after the decision with the Supreme Court decision was made, Rishi Sunak said he would put forward some emergency legislation to rescue the plan. Um, we're not exactly sure what form that will take. Um, there's been talk in the papers that um, they might try to, quote, disapply aspects of the Human Rights Act in emergency legislation. Whether or not that's even possible is a question which is as yet unconfirmed. Um, but, uh, and how in how that would look. Um, but they're also, what their kind of main plan is to try and agree a treaty with Rwanda that would pro- provide a guarantee that um, the human rights of people who are sent to Rwanda will be respected. Again, I'm not sure how that would look because that would still be subject to potential legal queries and it's, it's not like one of these things where you can just say rwanda's safe we've legally agreed it yeah you see what i mean so it's really about the policy in rwanda we do know that a former supreme court judge lord sumpson said on sky news recently that he thought that the rwanda plan was probably dead um the uk government has yet to accept that and the way that rishi sunat's talking about is is as if flights will continue he said flights will continue soon but I'm not exactly sure how that will happen. Okay, listeners, welcome to Paul's Curiosity Corner, the part of this show where we delve into the weird and wonderful side of disinformation and fact-checking. This week, we are talking about online uproar in some quarters about a team on University Challenge and their display of a cuddly octopus mascot. According to some viewers, that mascot was a symbol of anti-Semitic hate, but the BBC has defended the team and argued that those concerns are unfounded. We'll obviously let listeners make their own minds up about that, but I thought it might be useful to explain a little bit more about the significance of the octopus symbol uh, in anti-Semitism and sort of far-right circles. So... First of all, Ali, is the octopus an anti-Semitic symbol and what was its significance sort of around the end of the 19th century and to the Nazis? Yeah, so is the is an octopus an anti-Semitic symbol? Uh, I suppose the answer is not usually, but sometimes. Yeah. Um, the, a lot of these things, it's about context, isn't it? So there's a whole exactly. host of symbols and images which like to the everyday person uh, who's not kind of following this stuff seem completely innocent and are completely innocent, but they can be used for more like nefarious reasons. There's been a historical use of octopus or the squid motif by anti-Semitic cartoonists and groups to sort of portray a stereotype of Jewish power. So the tentacles are essentially used 
to suggest that Jewish institutions or Jewish people have power and influence over like loads of different parts of a country or an area. So you'll quite often see like a cartoon where a, an octopus is bred over a map, an area of map or the world and the octopus is a sort of cipher for people saying that that's what Jewish power does. It was used often uh, again at the turn of the century and then more and more as we got to uh, the 1930s in Germany, significantly in Nazi propaganda. The octopus is one of, kind of many like animals that um, have been used in anti-Semitic motifs. So it's also like um, snakes being used, birds and things like that, just which are used in various contexts in order to imply some sort of bad characterization of uh, Jewish people. Obviously, with, with regard to the University Challenge octopus mascot, it's not for us to make the kind of the final decision on whether or not, you know, what that was, yeah. why that was done. But there doesn't seem to be any evidence to suggest that it did have racist intent. The BBC said the episode was filmed before the current escalation in violence uh, in Gaza. Mascots in general are quite a common part of that TV show. So, I mean, as you mentioned there, it's, it's a symbol that most people wouldn't recognize as being... Uh, an anti-Semitic one. Yeah. So have there been other examples of people sort of unwittingly using the octopus or octopus symbology or anything like that um, and having similar concerns raised about it? Or is this an isolated incident? Yeah, so it's not... I mean, even recently, Greta Thunberg ran into some trouble. She posts every week her Friday Strike for Climate thing that she's been doing for many years. And the one she posted just after the um, escalation of violence, she posted a picture of her and some other activists with pro-Palestine banners. And in the picture, sitting next to one of them was a stuffed octopus. And then that kind of led to a big sort of social media furore. And she eventually took the image down and then put another one up without the octopus in it and then apologized for people who had thought there had been, been anti-Semitic intent in it. The toy itself is this kind of reversible octopus. You've probably seen it. You can reverse it. So the one side, the octopus is really sad and angry and the other side, it's happy. Thunberg said that one of the reasons it was there is because it's used by some people with autism as a way to kind of help them express certain emotions. And yeah, again, it didn't seem it didn't seem that there's much evidence that there was supposed to be anti-Semitic intent behind that. And she's seemingly unaware of the connection. As you've alluded to, the context of this is obviously the escalation of violence in Gaza. And obviously we've seen a lot of people out on the streets in recent weeks uh, at mm-hmm. pro, pro-Palestinian rallies and counter-rallies as well, obviously. Have we seen any use of the octopus symbol at these rallies or has it been adopted by Hamas, for example? Not that we could, we could see. I mean, again, there's, been, there's you know hundreds of thousands of people on the streets in the UK alone um, at pro-Palestine rallies. So it's totally possible that somebody might have had a banner with something uh, with an octopus on it. But we didn't have not seen any evidence of that. And again, I think one thing that's worth noting and kind of coming back to is that it isn't a particularly well-known symbol. Right, yeah. I don't think it's really particularly well-known in the public, mm-hmm. uh, in the wider public. And even among, in, among activists, a lot of people seem seemingly unaware of that connection. So yeah, it doesn't seem to have broken through into the mainstream that much. And a lot of the controversy uh, like surrounding the kind of Thunberg situation and the university challenge situation has been kind of driven by certain people on social media rather than it being like a widespread reaction against it.
That's all we've got time for for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, thanks to Ian Kaywood for his um, insight into the scandals which blighted our country uh, 200 years ago and continues to do so today. Um, so, Paul, uh, anything we want to shout out today? Yeah, I think anybody that enjoys this podcast should also check out the Ferrets Sheku Bayou The Inquiry podcast. Obviously, Definitely. that inquiry is restarting this week. Um, and if you want to get up to date with everything that's happened in it so far it's kind of the most in-depth look i think that there has been on that particular inquiry so I recommend everybody checks it out you can get it at the ferret.scot or wherever you normally get your podcasts definitely yeah a great podcast and um well deserved it's uh, british journalism awards nomination exactly if you want to get in touch with us, you can via all of our social media platforms. There's Facebook, there's Instagram, there's X, formerly known as Twitter. There's LinkedIn, even, if that's the way your life is going. Um, and you can get in contact with me directly, factcheck at theferret.scot, if you've got any questions, queries, or anything to add to the podcast. That's all I've got time for this week. Bye. Bye.